Good morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Zach Simmons and I'm the director for college ministry here. And I'm giving Josh a Sunday off. Um, this summer, I just started taking seminary classes and I was actually pretty nervous about it because um, I was not a great student in college. And 13 years later, I'm a better student <laughs> in my 30s than I was when I graduated from college. But the class I took was called Introduction to Hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the process of studying the Bible. How do we interpret it? How do we know that what we're b- believing from the Bible is right and interpreting correctly? And um, in college ministry, what I do with students a lot is I will walk through a letter from Paul, so Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, and I feel really comfortable studying those passages. Or I'll walk students, especially people who aren't believers, through the Gospel of Mark. So things that are narratives in the Bible, stories, I feel pretty comfortable. And then we got to the week when we were talking about poetry and prophecy, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? Poetry and prophecy is really difficult, but it's a huge category in the Bible. So for my final paper, um, they had different options, but one of the options was to write a sermon, and they gave four options for sermons, and one of them was Micah 6, 1 through 8, which is prophecy and poetry, both of those things. And I thought, because I struggled with this, I should do this as my final project. And then I got done with it, felt really good about it, and then Josh was like, hey, do you want to preach that on Sunday? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) So... You poor people have to deal with my final assignment. We'll get through it together. So if you want to turn with me to Micah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. Let me pray and then, and then I'll read it. Father, I pray that you would help us to see you clearly through this text. I pray that we would see that um, justice is a real category in the Bible and we should care about it. And that justice flows from a God who is loving and merciful and kind, who will by no means clearly guilty, but is abounding in steadfast love and would our justice, would, we, would our hearts yearn to be just and yearn to care for the welfare of others because we see how you have loved us. So would you give us clarity here? Would your spirit work in our hearts so that we would be convicted of sin and encouraged by your word? So pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Micah chapter six, verses one through eight. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, 
with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When we moved to Northfield, we bought a house on the other side of town and uh, a, water softener company, a water softener company called me and asked if we wanted to continue the lease on the water softening equipment that we had in the house. And I asked, was it necessary for us to do this? What, what's the benefit? It, living in Minneapolis, we had never, we never needed a water softener. So the woman on the phone explained to me that in places like Northfield, where the calcium and magnesium count in the water is extremely high, all the appliances in the house can become calcified in their inner pipings. And eventually the appliance is gonna break down. And it's not a matter of if they will break down, it is a matter of when they will break down. So it was in fact necessary. And on the phone, I renewed the lease immediately. Um, the water in Northfield is like the spiritual nature of Israel at the time of Micah. Since the beginning of Israel's time in the promised land, idol worship was in the warp and the woof of the surrounding cultures. And like poison in the water, calcium deposits, we see a continual pattern of idol worship calcifying Israel's worship of God. For some, this led to outright rejection of the covenant relationship with Yahweh, and they just turned to other gods completely. But for others, it was like calcium-rich water. They had subtle issues that eventually would lead to big problems. And that's what Micah's trying to get at in this passage. So here's the main point of, of what we're going to draw out today that I see in verses 1 through 8. The fountainhead of your concern for justice and the way you interact in your life and conduct yourself, the fountainhead of that is shown in how you relate to God. There's an inextricable link between the way in which you relate to God and how you're going to care for others around you. The indictment that God brings against his people is, is both towards him and the way that it flows outward towards other people. So let's look at this. There is an indictment. Look at verses one and two. So verses one and two, it says this. Hold it up. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So notice two things about this indictment. First, notice the legality of the contention, the wording that he uses. The Lord states that he is going to plead his case and that he has an indictment against his people Israel. Why the legal wording? God is coming to a people who he has covenanted with, first with Abraham and then through the Mosaic law. And they have turned their back on him. So the legal wording is because they made a promise with him. They made a covenant that they were going to act a certain way and they didn't keep up with that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is notice the enormity of the contention. So he's going to plead his case before the mountains and the enduring foundations of the earth. What is higher than the mountains and what is lower than the foundations of the earth? And what has continually existed in all the time that the Lord has covenanted with his people? the mountains and the enduring foundations, right? 
The Lord is saying that all of creation, which has been an observer of God's covenant with Israel for all time, is to be judged between him and Israel. Here's a modern day example, which breaks down. Okay, the analogy breaks down, all analogies break down. But in February of this last year, Super Bowl, Kansas City Chiefs beat the Philadelphia Eagles. And as Jalen Hurts threw that terrible pass at the end of the game to end the game, the Kansas City Chiefs defensive players started walking around like this. Like, are we not the champions? And, and everyone's cheering because they are the champions, right? So what if, you know, on the, on the field, every Super Bowl, they have, you know, the, the big stage that they bring up and then the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, stands up and he says, I'd like to announce to you the champions, you know, and he gives it to the Kansas City Chiefs to Andy Reid, the head coach. What if instead he said, I'd like to announce to you the champions, the Philadelphia Eagles, Everybody would have been like, boo, right? It doesn't make any sense that he would say that because everybody clearly saw the end of the game. Everyone clearly saw who won that game. That is what God is saying. He's saying your guilt is obvious to all of creation. It is blatant. This isn't subtle. It's very clear that there's something that's wrong here with how you're interacting with me and how you're interacting with one another. So what is the indictment? The indictment comes in three parts. The first is Israel's weariness, and the second is Israel's worship, and the third is Israel's work. So we're gonna look at each of those three things, Israel's weariness, Israel's worship, and Israel's works. So first, Israel's weariness. Look at Micah 6, verses three through five with me. Verse three says, "'O my people, what have I done to you? "'How have I wearied you? "'Answer me.'" This question is, of course, a rhetorical one, and it's not meant to be answered by his people, and we see that because of what comes next. So verses four and five, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, here's where my seminary class comes into play. The poetic structure of verses three and verses four show a clear separation between how the Israelites felt and what reality actually was. And here's why. I'm gonna butcher this in Hebrew, okay? So stay with me. But verse three, the phrase, I burdened you, in Hebrew is helatika. <laughs> Butchering it. Verse four, I brought you up, is helatika. Don't they sound really similar? Especially for English, it's like, how, what's the difference, right? Literally, it's, it's, it, it's so minute. I burdened you, helatika. I brought you up, helatika. Two completely opposite things, right? I mean, in English, the equivalent would be saying, how did I burden you? I unburdened you, right? How have I wearied you? I have put your feet on solid ground and given you rest. That's the difference here. But, the, but it's so slight in the, in the wording. So the Lord is contrasting their feelings with the reality. Now, um, a good example would be, a, a modern day example would be my daughter, Marigold, is three. She's sitting in the back with my wife. And um, she loves snacks. That girl would only eat snacks if we let her. She often will get done with breakfast and then say, I'm hungry, can I have a nap? So she loves snacks, and me and Mama know that she can't just have snacks. We like giving her snacks, but we can't, she just can't have snacks. So 
a couple months ago, um, we, we traveled to Nebraska. I did an evangelism seminar at my dad's church in Nebraska. And on our way back, we, were, we stopped at Five Guys and we got her a hot dog. And she ate like three bites of her hot dog. And she was like, I'm not hungry anymore. So being the, ex- not wise, but experienced parents that we are, we wrapped that thing up and brought it in the car with us as we hit the road again. And five minutes into us being on the road, I'm hungry. So we handed her her hot dog and then she ate the whole thing. She, well, she ate, she ate all of the meat, like the actual hot dog. She left the bun. So then about five minutes after that, she says, I'm hungry. So we handed her her bun and she goes, no, I full with that. I full with that. Can I have a knack? <laughs> That is how the Israelites are treating God. I fall with that. Can I have something else? Do you have anything else to offer me? The Lord for them was insufficient. He didn't have what they need fully. He doesn't relieve burdens. He's just burdensome. Just like my daughter thinks we're burdensome when we make her eat her dinner as opposed to giving her a knack. Yet while the Israelites may feel as though the Lord can be burdensome, verses three through five, we can see this list that he gives of ways in which he has actually blessed them. So let's go through this quickly. He has brought them up from the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the house of slavery. No longer are they subject to the whims of an unjust Egyptian ruler. He's put them in their own land. He sent before them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Unlike their their current leaders, which earlier in Micah, chapter 3, he talks about how their leaders will do anything for a bribe. These leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, by and large honored God, and when they screwed up, They repented of their sin. Three, he turned the cursing attempts of Balak and Balaam into blessings. So even those who tried to stop them, he turned what the people were trying to do to stop them into a blessing for them. With Balak and Balaam. Fourth, he brought them up and gave them the land in which they now have, ultimately securing the removal of Egypt's reproach when they've crossed the Jordan River. But it's more than that. David Pryor Uh, He wrote a commentary on Micah. He states, God's savings acts were not isolated incidents at key moments like the exodus and the entry into the promised land. They happened regularly from Shittim to Gilgal. That's what he says in verse five, Shittim to Gilgal. So many things happened there where we see that God was good to his people. Virtually the entire period which is covered by the book of Joshua. So God over and over and over again shows he doesn't weary them. He blesses them beyond what they deserve. He has given abundant blessing toward them. And so therefore, his original question, how have I wearied you, is really dripping with irony, right? It's the opposite of what's, what's happened. So the first piece of this indictment then, with Israel's weariness, is that they are not acting in light of God's covenant faithfulness to them. They are not acting with gratitude for what God has done for them. They think that God has burdened them when in fact God has relieved their burdens and they have forgotten what he has done. And what about us? What about you? What are ways you are tempted to believe that God is burdensome? What is the calcium in your water, in the water of your heart, that over and over again you need to be thinking through, this makes me think bad things about God? What what is it for you? Maybe you feel deprived. Maybe in your life, Things are difficult, and you feel like if I just had this thing, if the Lord just gave me this thing, then I would be content, and then I would be happy. Maybe you feel like the Lord is unhappy with you, and there's no way 
that you could do anything to make him happy with you. Or maybe you think, I, I, he's unhappy with me, and if I just show up to church and try and be a good person, then he'll be maybe not pleased with me, but, but allow me to pass, allow me to get by. Or maybe you just think that he's distant. You've got things going on in your life and he just doesn't care. He demands worship and yet he hasn't helped me in my life. If that is true of you today, then I will tell you that is true of my heart. When I wake up in the morning, I feel deprived in my life, feel as if I'm deprived and because I'm deprived of specific things, I'm hurting, I need, I need more and God hasn't given it to me. And so um, we need to come to God with those things. So I would just ask you now, think about this. What in your heart is a temptation, a calcium that, that makes the water of your heart hard? So we see that the small change in wording between heletika and heletika changes. He's showing a contrast, but it also shows something else. Stephen Dempster is a guy who wrote another commentary on the book of Micah, and he says this, just as it's easy to change the meaning of a word profoundly with a slight change, in form, Israel has done the same thing with their religion. So the distinction between feeling gratitude for God and feeling burdened by God can really be a thin line. It can be a subtle line. And we're gonna see this in this next section. So the second indictment, second part of the indictment is Israel's worship of God. So. Verse six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? These two questions are actually really good questions. They're parallel to one another in the Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism, which is a hard word to say and even harder to understand. But these are good, these are good questions. This is something that we should be asking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? But you have to understand in the book of Micah, the people who were coming to him, they thought they were doing this well. Here's why. In Micah chapter 3, it says that, Micah 3 verse 11, um, it says that Israel's leaders give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. The prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So they are leaning on the Lord, saying that they are trusting in him, and yet their acts show that they're not actually leaning on the Lord. But they thought they were okay. And that's the question for us. Do we think we're okay and we're actually not? We're gonna get into how you know. Um, so, uh, hold on, where am I at? Okay, uh, the, the second thing in Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah, he says this, hear this in um, Isaiah chapter 48, verses one and two. He says, hear this, O house of Jacob, who were called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So what, what we're seeing here with Micah is it is not sufficient for you to simply say you are calling on the name of the Lord. Your life must line up with your, the way you relate to God. If your life doesn't line up, then you don't actually get it. 
how we relate to God matters because how we relate to God is going to drastically impact the way in which we're going to interact with others. The Israelites of Micah's time were haughty. They were arrogant in how they viewed their relationship with God. They believed that God was working for them, but they didn't know God properly. So Micah's next set of questions seem to hone in on this group specifically. So let's look at this, verse six and seven. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice the escalation in these questions. This is another Hebrew poetic thing that it builds over time with each line that they say. So first he suggests coming before God with a burnt offering, which was the acceptable sacrifice at the time, but then with a calf a year old, which was considered the most sumptuous of meat. Then he says an abundance of sacrifice, not just one calf, what about a thousand rams, 10,000s of rivers of oil. And then he suggests the most valuable asset they have, their very own children. Are any of these acceptable offerings to the Lord? And the provocation in these questions suggests that none of them are what the Lord is after with the Israelites. So while his first few suggestions would have been expected from Israel, the final suggestion makes it clear that all of this is in fact absurd and not the appropriate way to come before the Lord. Here's why. Nowhere does the Lord promote child sacrifice. Shall I bring my firstborn? Now we know from, from Micah's time, actually in 2 Kings chapter 17, there's this long laundry list of sins that's the reason that Israel was taken into captivity in Assyria. And one of them that was really highlighted is child sacrifice. Because the surrounding nations were doing it, Israel then was tempted as well to sacrifice their children. And so nowhere is it saying it's acceptable and Mike is teasing them by saying, should I do that? Would the Lord be pleased with that? Your most valuable thing that you have. No, he would not be pleased with it. The Lord rejects all of these things. It's not what he's after. So if the first piece of the indictment was insufficient gratitude leading to weariness for what God has done, thinking that God is a burden, the second piece of the indictment can be seen as an inappropriate view of what God is looking for when they come to him. The lavishness of the gift is not what the Lord desires. It's not the way to appease God so that he fights for you. What then is it that the Lord desires? Let's move on to the third, Israel's works. Verse eight, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So with the final installment of the passage in scripture, the Lord's indictment becomes clear. The Lord desires three things. He wants them to do justice, he wants them to love kindness, and he wants them to walk humbly with their God. So let's look at each of these three things more in depth. First, let's look at justice. What does it mean to do justice? Justice is a big word in our current cultural context. Every worldview in America is for justice. And the problem lies in answering the question, what exactly is justice? My neighbor who I'm getting to know and who I really like, him and I have been starting to go on runs together, and he's not a Christian, um, but he would say what he believes in more than anything else is fairness. That's what he believes in. 
every worldview in America wants justice, but what does it actually look at? look like. Now, the Bible has many categories for justice. In fact, if you were to, the Hebrew word is mispot. If you were to put that in and look at how many times it's said in the Old Testament, it is amazing. It's one of the most common words over and over said, justice. Justice is important. It matters. So in Micah 6, specifically, what is he talking about? Stephen Dempster, guy who wrote a commentary, he says this, this justice in Micah 6, 8, unquestionably has to do with the common people living a fair and equitable life, helping the powerless, doing the will of God in their social relationships, ensuring that they are concerned for the disadvantaged and that the wicked be punished and the righteous vindicated. Let me read that one more time so you can really hear this. This is, this is justice in Micah. It unquestionably has to do with the common people living a fair and equitable life, helping the powerless, doing the will of God in their social relationships, ensuring that they are concerned for the disadvantaged and that the wicked be punished and the righteous vindicated. Now, is that biblical? This is coming from a commentary. Well, if you go through the book of Micah, you're gonna see over and over again injustice playing itself out and it looks just like this. So just in chapter two, there's three things that we see. One is people were coveting fields of other people who were more disadvantaged and they were seizing them they were demanding debts be paid and pulling people out of their homes. Women and children were driven out of their homes for the sake of financial gain. We see that in verses eight and nine of chapter two. And then if any sort of criticism was brought to somebody, they didn't want to hear it. All they wanted to hear was how God was blessing them. It is unjust to take from others and then to not want to talk about it. So to sum it up, justice is fairness. If you go through the whole book of Micah, you're going to see this over and over again. Justice is fairness. Now, what I really want to, to get here is that the fountainhead of how you're going to relate to other people is inextricably linked with how you relate to God. And we're going to really see this as we move into loving kindness. So the second thing, loving kindness. Uh, a couple of things. One is... Uh, the Hebrew word for, for kindness is hesed. And it's used twice when God speaks about himself when he, when he introduces himself to Mo, Moses. Moses in Exodus 33 says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll hide you in a cleft of a rock and I'm gonna walk by you. This had never been done before. And so he hides him in a cleft of a rock and he walks by. And this is what the Lord says. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping chesed, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Chesed, steadfast love, kindness, loyalty are things that are of the essence of who God is. When he, when Moses asked, show me your glory, and God walked by him and proclaimed his name, the word that we see twice as God is walking by is steadfast love, chesed. So it is used over 200 times in the Old Testament and we see it played out over and over and over again. We see it with Abraham, 
when God says that he will take it upon himself to fulfill the covenant if Abraham doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. Remember that? We just talked about that this summer. He's got the animals cut in two, and instead of making Abraham walk through it, which would signify, Abraham, if you screw this up, then I'm gonna hold you accountable. God walks through it and says, Abraham, if you screw this up, I'm gonna hold myself accountable. I'm gonna put it on me. We see it there. We see it in verses three through five. God outlines so briefly the many ways that he cared for and loved the Israelites, though they were obstinate in the moment. And then beyond the Old Testament, we see it in Jesus in so many ways. But let's look at one. When Jesus is on the cross and you've got people who are on the road walking by and they're mocking him, and then one layer closer, you've got the Pharisees who are saying he saved others, can't he save himself? Let Elijah come down and save him. They're mocking him saying he's not actually the son of God. And then you have the Roman soldiers who are dividing his garments, who put on a crown of thorns on his head. And then you've got two people who actually deserve to be punished, who are being crucified with him, who are mocking him. One of them changes his tune, but originally both are mocking him. And what does Jesus say in that moment? Does he say, until you understand how painful this is for me, then I will forgive you. Until you understand the injustice of what's happening, then I will forgive you. Until you take responsibility for your actions, then I will forgive you. He doesn't say that. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his moment of deepest pain, Jesus chesed, his steadfast love was so present in the essence of who God is for all of eternity past. This is who God is. So when he's talking for us to love kindness, he's not saying be kind. He's saying love kindness. How is it that we can love kindness? When we think about how God has loved us, that is how we can love kindness. When we think on the ways in which God over and over and over again has been merciful and gracious, delighting, abounding in steadfast love. In Deuteronomy 7, God says, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation, Israel. I love you just because I love you. It's not because you were good enough. It's not because of the color of your skin. I love you just because I love you. That is who God is. It is not a love that is begrudging. We don't see that on the cross. Jesus didn't begrudgingly go to the cross. In his moment of greatest pain, he said, Father, forgive them. It is not begrudging. It is generous and bountiful. It is not exacting. There is a way in which you could do justice to others because God commands it and yet not care about the person. It is, I want to. I want to be just. I want to care for others. Even people who don't deserve it, I want to be merciful to them. Why? Because God has been merciful to me when I look at my life and think of all the ways in which I fail continually and to think God is merciful and his mercy is not withholding. He is not distant. I am justified in Christ, not because of my own works, but because of the works of Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says, in love he predestined me, in love, 
because he loves us. And what is he gonna do for all of eternity? In Ephesians 2, it says, he is going to use eternity to display the riches of his kindness and grace towards us. He has riches in his love for us. That is what chesed means. It means steadfast love that is loyal and faithful and merciful and gracious. And we see it over and over again. So the question is, when we think about God's steadfast love towards us, is there something missing in the way that then that pours out to other people? Let's look at the third one, to walk humbly. I seem to be missing a page. Hold on. All right, no, here it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm the rookie here, all right? Listen, I just work here, all right? Josh, Josh is the guy who's, who's, isn't trying. All right, so. Um, all right. Uh, so the third one, walking humbly with God. What does this look like? Well, I think what we could do is, is say, you're not gonna love God's love if you aren't humble before God. You're not gonna be just towards other people, truly just be towards other people, unless you see the way in which God has loved you, unless you love God's steadfast love and you love his kindness. And you're not gonna do that unless you are willing to admit fault. So I think walking humbly with God is to admit fault. So let me ask you, if I were to ask your spouse, or your roommate, your closest friend, when was the last time that you apologized for something? What would they say? When was the last time that you admitted fault? Admitted that you did something wrong? I think what it means to walk humbly with God is to admit that we're sinful, that we got issues. I ain't right inside, right? And I, I, I need help. And it's not like a, I sin, you know, once every six months. It's like, ask my wife. <laughs> she, that's not what she'd say, right? And she would be right. She is right. So what it means to walk humbly with God is to admit fault. Micah himself does this. In the, in the next chapter, in chapter 7, he says this. In, in verse 9, he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. So Micah himself is modeling. He's saying, I, I've got issues. I'm gonna admit fault before God. All of us have sinned. There's no one here who can say that they walk perfectly before God. What it means to walk humbly with God is to admit fault. And what it means to walk humbly with God is to not think that you can fix it within yourself. Is that not the problem that the Israelites had here? They were weary of God because they thought God is so demanding. In order for me to be right with God, I have to do all of these different things. And they were missing his steadfast love for them. His steadfast love is what kept them, not their sacrifices. Their sacrifices were a means for them to be able to realize and see their problems but he, his steadfast love, his mercy was what kept them. He wasn't pleased with their offerings because they thought that that was it. That's what I can bring. That, that's my contribution to this. What it means to walk humbly with God is to say, I don't have it. I don't have it and I can't get it without you. You're the only one who can save me. 
So if we walk humbly with God, then it's gonna change the way in which we view God's love for us. And if it changes the way we view God's love for us, we are inevitably gonna have to see the way in which we interact with other people is off. So um, to use a backwoods phrase, I'm from Wyoming, the Lord wanted their hearts, not their hamburgers. Thank you. All right, so um, how do we fight this tendency to think of the Lord as burdensome and to treat others unjustly? How do we soften our water? Well, as we said in the beginning, the fountainhead of your concern for justice towards others is shown in how you relate to God, specifically how you see how God has related to you. He has not doled out justice on you. He has doled out justice on Christ. He has been loving and faithful and kind. We should therefore likewise go and do the same thing. We cannot do that unless we admit faults. We cannot do that unless we admit that we don't got it and we can't get it. He's the only one that can help us. So let me leave you with this. Um, Because how you relate to God influences how you relate to other people, I've got three questions for you just to think about and how you relate to God, and then three questions for how you think about how you relate to others. So, how you relate to God. Here's my three questions. One, do you follow God with delight or with drudgery? Does your walk with God feel burdensome to you, or does it feel uplifting to you? Second, is God, in your mind, can he be can he feel like a tyrant, a clingy friend, like needy or broken, just insufficient? Can God feel like any of those things? Can he feel like a tyrant? Can he feel like a clingy, needy friend? Or can he just feel broken, like he doesn't have what you need? And then three, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there anything that you haven't shared with other people? And as I'm speaking right now, you know exactly what it is and you shouldn't be sharing with other people. And that unconfessed sin is keeping you from admitting fault and walking humbly with God, which inevitably is going to affect the way in which you treat other people. Is there unconfessed sin? If there is, confess it. The Lord says that those who confess with their mouths will be forgiven. Confess your, James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. So whatever it is, confess it. There is no sin that's too great. The Lord can cover it. Because of what Christ did on the cross, it is sufficient what Jesus has done. So confess it. Then I've got three questions for how you relate to others. Do you wish that every person in your sphere of influence would have good done to them? Think about people who who are in your sphere of influence that you may not necessarily be close to or that you don't like. Do you wish that good would be done to them? It's one thing to say, I'm gonna treat them justly and if they've been unjust, then I'm gonna treat them like they deserve punishment. It's another thing to say, I love kindness. And the way in which God has treated me has been not what I deserve. And therefore, the way I wanna treat other people who don't look like me, or who don't act like me, or who believe different things than me, I want good for their life as well. Secondly, do you desire to be merciful to those who don't deserve it? And then third, Does your decision-making in politics primarily stem from your way of life feeling threatened or because of your desire to do good to others? 
Now that's a whole kettle of fish that we can't get into. And I'm not making any political statement. But as a believer, what we should be at least saying is the decisions that we make in our life should be because we love other people. We want good for all people. We should want that as believers more than us feeling threatened by our way of life. And let, let me leave you with this. In Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, Paul gets done with this glorious explanation of the victory that we have in Christ. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then at the end, he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will those things separate us from the love of Christ? He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we can have confidence that no matter what happens with our country, and there are big issues, but no matter what happens with our country, we cannot be separated from the love of God. The first century Christians who Paul wrote to had worse leaders than we do, and they could not separate them from the love of God. So we need not fear our way of life being threatened. Instead, we should be thinking, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. We don't hide those things. We let those lights shine for the good of others. So, much to think about. Let me pray. Father, you are good. Your steadfast love is better than life. Your chesed is better than life. Your steadfast love is new every morning. And we trust in you. You are not an anesthetic. You do not make painful situations easier merely by causing us not to feel pain but you promise that you will be with us at all times, in all ways. So I pray that you would help us to believe that and then that would transform the way we interact with other people. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.